Drove through fields all wet with rain Back along the lane again in the sunshine I'm Doug Storm. Welcome to Interchange. Our show music tonight comes from Van Morrison because I just couldn't get him out of my head today and now I'm going to do a kind of audio handoff to you. Enjoy. This is The Way Young Lovers Do off of Astro Weeks. You'll feel the way that Yes, Van Morrison is Irish, and our subject tonight is IU Theatre's summer festival production of two pieces coming out of England, Shakespeare's Midsummer Night's Dream and an adaptation of Jane Austen's Sense and Sensibility. Perhaps this is my response to Brexit. Who knows? My guests tonight are four professional actors who will appear courtesy of the Actors' Equity Association in these two productions, which are running on alternating nights from July 8th through July 23rd. They are David Kortemeyer, Amanda Catania, Grant Goodman, and Jenny McKnight. I'll warn you the conversation is very fluid as it alternates focus from Midsummer to Sense and Sensibility. Consistent throughout, though, is an attempt to show the way stage performances can bring the thinking we do about works of art into a collaborative space between plays, among actors, and into the theater and its seated guests. The actors introduce themselves, and initially there's a kind of round-robin of commentary by each, and this should help you keep their voices straight throughout. But if you can't, well, these productions do have something of a cross-communications aspect to them. And now, Midsummer Sensibility on Interchange. I'm David Kordemeyer. I'm from Central Illinois, and I'm here to play Nick Bottom in A Midsummer Night's Dream, and uh, Henry Dashwood and Sir John Middleton in Sense and Sensibility. Um, my name's Amanda Catania. I'm originally from Cape Cod, Massachusetts, now residing in Chicago. Um, I will be playing Helena in Midsummer Night's Dream and Eleanor Dashwood in Sense and Sensibility. I'm Grant Goodman. I'm originally from southern Indiana. I'm mm-hmm. from a town called Seymour, Indiana. Uh, I went to NYU, where Amanda went, and I'm here to play Oberon and Theseus in Midsummer Night's Dream and Colonel Brandon in Sense and Sensibility. My name is Jenny McKnight. I grew up in the southeast, all over the place, primarily in Alabama. Um, and I am playing Titania and Hippolyta mm-hmm. in A Midsummer Night's Dream. And Mrs. Jennings in Sense and Sensibility. Very good. Well, thank you. Thank you all for being here. Thank you. Thank you for having us. Good. So I know little about repertory theater or summer festivals generally, and Mm -hmm. this seemed not strange to me, but I wondered about the the two plays together. Am I supposed to understand one better by seeing the other Mm -hmm. one? Is it a marriage plot, uh, rights of women? You know, all these things, of course, we can tie together. But Mm -hmm. I wondered if there's a sense of that for you. Is it, does it make sense to put these two plays together? Do you see parallels in your own performances, things of that nature? Or it's just something to do. I think the great thing about repertory theater, 
I think one of the reasons that actors love to do it, theaters love to um, stage repertory, is because this, the plays end up speaking to each other in ways that you would not have expected. And I think that looking for those parallels actually is very helpful for the mm -hmm. actors because y you are sort of, well, you know, as actors, we're all sort of dramaturgs, you know, it, uh, and we love play analysis and digging into the bits and bobs of the plays. And I think that you, you do find these strange reverberations in mm -hmm. each of the plays mm -hmm. that they do have a dialogue. Yeah, I mean, certainly we've talked a lot about like the fact that I feel like Midsummer for me at least, has a lot to do with like young love versus mature love and young love maturing and how we get there. And certainly I feel like there's an element of that in Sense and Sensibility too, um, especially with Marianne of, of like discovering who you really are and who someone else really is and um, what, what love is and how we get there. So I mean, yeah. I, I don't know necessarily that I thought about that going into it. I think for me, it's like, you know, I'm excited to play two completely different roles in two different plays. <laughs> um, but yeah, I, 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 I suppose that they do end up speaking to one another. I mean, you're one person playing both. I don't know how they couldn't. Um, as far as like repertory theater goes in general, I think, I, I know there's many theaters that like will be like a season of terror or, <laughs> you know, a season of adventure and, you know, try to connect their, what they've chosen for those reasons. But I don't, I don't know that that's something that artistic directors necessarily like, we need another adventure play. What are we going to do? I read a, a screenwriting book recently and the, in the book, it, the, the gentleman who wrote it essentially said all stories are the exact same mm -hmm. and they're all about essentially going into the forest mm -hmm. and discovering yourself and coming out and it's it is strange because that is exactly obviously that's exactly what happens in midsummer but marianne and eleanor are cast out and they have to go to dorsetshire which is essentially in the sticks yep. at the end of the earth mm -hmm. and you know mature like you mm -hmm. said and of course there are there are as you suggested um logistical issues. This is a festival that, that wants to showcase, rightly so, um, students and uh, to bring in professionals to probably fill in the more seasoned, older... Mature. Mature. <laughs> so there is that. There is, you know, what, what stories can we tell that will help showcase uh, what we want to showcase and uh, so those are, those are considerations, certainly. But I, I totally agree. I think that the, the part of the fun of rep is to discover how these stories connect and um, and intertwine in ways that perhaps one didn't suspect or realize coming into it. Mm -hmm. You brought up a theme of, of women um, and how they fit into society and how they sort of uh, take what little power they might have. And in both of these plays we're discovering in rehearsal, um, and I'm discovering with the roles that I'm playing, that there is an opportunity to tell that story. Uh, in Midsummer, we are setting up sort of an arc that at the beginning of the play, it is a very patriarchal society, but by the end of the play, we've found a balance um, in how, how the women in that society um, influence the decisions of the men who actually have the power. And in Sense and Sensibility, of course, the, uh, in Regency England, women had very little power in terms of you know, political power, or, uh, but, they have, but they do have a lot of power in determining a family a family's route. They have a lot of power in, in uh, influencing uh, the men, um, and they have a lot of power in you know in ways that are a little 
I don't want to say insidious, but it may be a little more subtle. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, figuring out ways to grab that power and to, uh, to exercise it has been really fun. Hmm. I'm not sort of connecting now. I remember walking in, the cast it was half women, half men, which is very, in rare. Rep, very rare, especially with doing Shakespeare. I mean, usually there's like <laughs> three women right, right. <laughs> and 15 men. So that was a breath of fresh air and, and Absolutely. certainly I think feeds into what you were just Speaking Absolutely, of. yeah, it's fun. Mm. Well, the um, the idea that uh, women, in particular, um, obviously with sense and sensibility, it is our primary focus. They're the, the family of the the forlorn and cast out women out of the society from by basically another woman. You know, mm-hmm. so yes. Saying, yeah. um, <laughs> this is an interesting thing, and 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 think about it in terms of how women influence the men in that society, it's not a pretty picture, mm-hmm. right? I mean, the men aren't great and the women aren't great either. And the, I think with Jane Austen in particular, I'm wondering often if there are these great people, like so Eleanor, mm-hmm. good person, right? Um, Colonel Brandon is Brandon, a good person. a stalwart, oh, yeah. you know, I think, character. I think one of the things we're discovering in rehearsal um, and one of the things that you know, helps make the play not just a story of good people versus, you know, evil people, is that everybody in this society is trying very hard to sort of move up. And it's it's not a, it's a very rigid uh, class system, so there's not a lot of opportunity, but they can move up in terms of, you know, following their heart or, you know, in the case of Eleanor and Edward, figuring out how to be happy within the constrictive sort of um, structure of the society. Um, and, you know, for a character like Mrs. Jennings, who I play, it's it's all about helping the young people find happiness and helping, you know, helping them realize um, realize their potential in a society that is pretty restrictive, particularly for women. This is Doug Storm for Interchange on WFHB. The conversation today is with four professional actors performing in the IU Summer Theater's two productions, A Midsummer Night's Dream and Sense and Sensibility. What's your sense of Mrs. Jennings as uh, in Jane Austen? She's um, certainly inappropriate uh, and yes. uh, outside of class and everything else. She's vulgar. Yes. Right? So, I think so. Um, where does she fit into that you know, moral universe? Uh, everything's okay for her. She's, of course, well settled. Sure. So she can be vulgar right. and not care about society so much or care about the, the way people see her. Right. Right? Do you get to a point where, again, it's class and wealth that allows you to have any freedom of, of response, of thought, things like that? I think so. I mean, I, she certainly is fr- much freer with her opinions and thoughts than she should be within the society. <laughs> uh, and it gets her into trouble sometimes. Uh, what, I've, what I've found interesting and fun to work on with the character is those moments of, oh, I've overstepped my bounds. And going and asking forgiveness for those missteps. Because, I, you know, she is she is over the top. She is definitely pushing the boundaries unintentionally, I think. I mean, I think with with the best intentions and with a really good heart. But, you know, she's she is much freer with her opinions. I, I feel like balancing out the sort of broadness of the character with 
the heart and what compels her to behave the way she beha- behaves has been really fun for me. I think that's one of the great things about Mrs. Jennings and Sir John Middleton mm-hmm. is they are vehicles of maturation for mm-hmm. Eleanor and Marianne. Mm-hmm. They have to leave a wealthy society, being in society, and they're cast out. And in Jane Austen land, <laughs> Dorsetshire is... is uh, it, it's they're the hillbillies. Ends of the earth. Yeah. It's the yeah. ends of the earth, yeah. you know, and they are rustics in a way. Mm-hmm. And at first, I think it's shocking that they are, you know, these these hillbillies who are unrefined. Yeah. But over the course of the novel, over the course of the play, they learn love, warmth, um, I mean, sense of family, yeah. generosity. Certainly, they're both John and um, John Middleton and Mrs. Jennings are so generous. Mm-hmm with the Dashwood sisters, and, and when Marianne gets sick, I mean, they're right there. Yeah. And, and One of the prettiest exactly. scenes in the play. You know, and yeah. it's interesting, too, that there's a similarity, uh, as there is in all Jane Austen, of this, this novel, this, uh, this play to Pride and Prejudice. I think it's the same thing with the gardeners in Pride and Prejudice, you don't see Darcy's true nature until you get to know him through the gardener, so he can go fishing with. <laughs> yeah. And I think it's it's interesting that the, the um, Mrs. Jennings and Sir John Middleton serve that same function in Sense and yeah. Sensibility. Is it a private versus public you know, space Absolutely. where you exactly. get to see finally a person not in society. Yeah, and home, you know, in the country. or A little, a little bit of safety and allowing mm-hmm. them to sort of loosen up and think about what do I really want? What, you know, what is the best move for me at this point? Do I want to go with my, with the expectations of society or do I want to go with what my heart is telling me? Well, these are interesting, too, because uh, in the sense that we can even talk about these things from this class perspective, right? Uh, I, don't, I guess I haven't read any novels of servant classes, right? So mm-hmm. uh, recently we've had, uh, what, Downton Abbey, which shows mm-hmm. us a servant class which uh, seems to, con- you know, um, uh, look for ways to, you know, change their life as well, um, and but works off the you know, table scraps of the upper class as well. So, you know, having the leisure to think about how um, we can or can't open up to each other or what we mean to each other is interesting, but also so strangely, uh, you know, hierarchical, so strangely classist, so strangely elitist, right? I think this one of the strange things to remember, and Downton Abbey is such a great example because the most powerful woman, the most f- powerful person in Downton Abbey is the Dowager Countess Mm -hmm. Grantham, the Maggie Smith role. And it's very similar in Pride and Prejudice and this play. In Pride and Prejudice, you have Lady Catherine de Bourgh, who holds all the purse strings. And in Sense and Sensibility, strangely, the woman at the top of the feeding food chain is Mrs. Ferris. Mm -hmm. Um, So in in a male-dominated society... It, the, the irony, as you know, the irony is abundant in Jane Austen. It's one mm-hmm. of the, her trademarks. It's what I think one of the reasons we still like to examine her works is that it, it actually the, it's a woman that. And perhaps, and I th- probably still true today, the greatest power that women have in our society is that they outlive the men. You know? <laughs> yeah, exactly. They're usually widows. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's a good point. I think about that. The, the womp money womp. eventually, yeah, yeah, the money eventually goes. Yeah, absolutely. Right. Yeah. Right. Absolutely. So it's patience. The patience of Job. Right? <laughs> Not Job's wife. <laughs> 
Well, the um, uh, Grant, when you mentioned sort of the, there being one story, basically, right? Another thing that uh, that you confront when you read um, novels, in particular, not maybe well, also the Shakespeare play, right? The the idea that on stage or in a movie um, you're missing. Uh, the author's voice sometimes, right? So mm-hmm. especially in Jane Austen, you get a lot of, of Jane Austen mm-hmm. through um, Eleanor, you know, through these particular thoughts of the characters. Hard to get that yeah. on stage. In Shakespeare as well. Mm-hmm. On the page, it's fanciful. You know, in, the, in my head, mm-hmm. as I read mm-hmm. it, I imagine these fairies, and these fairies are imaginable. Mm-hmm. But put them on the stage, and they're people. You know, they're, what are they? And mm-hmm. it's sort of the way in which we try to capture, you know, this imaginative space in front of us, you know, live on stage is an interesting challenge, I guess. Well, there are two, you know, the, uh, there are two sides to that coin. Uh, Harold Bloom, who's a famous Shakespearean critic, uh, he says, at least of Antony and Cleopatra, he says that play can't be performed. There aren't two actors that can inhabit those characters. Mm-hmm. And uh, the, the, perhaps the same could be true about Midsummer. Of course, you can't have flying fairy unless it's Cirque du Soleil right. or Julie Taymor's production. <laughs> um, but as David can, David and I and Amanda, anyone who's actually done Midsummer Night's Dream can attest, it is it's a perfect play. It just works on stage. I've never seen it not work on stage. No matter if it's a seventh grade uh, junior high production, the play works. Of course, it's one of the only plays that Shakespeare developed the entire plot himself, not one that he stole uh, from someone else. Mm-hmm. And, and I think that that's a, it, it's a perfect little Jenga, uh, it and it just, it just works. It does. Hmm. Well, there, uh, that's, uh, that's interesting to, to, to think about, like, uh, because it's a complex play, and I'll admit that I tend to listen I'm a, uh, you know, an audible books kind of guy. Mm-hmm. And so I listen to plays and I listen to um, this one in particular. It's very confusing mm-hmm. to listen to mm-hmm. because I don't know who's talking mm-hmm. when they're For talking. Because, sure. right. you know, the women sound the same. The men sound the same. They're <laughs> bouncing in and out. Their names are strange. <laughs> so I found myself lost in the listening. Mm-hmm. You know, I think, I think that's the difference, though, between, I mean, they say, you know, it's, it's meant to be read out loud. It's meant to be performed. I think when you're actually seeing different people speaking, um, it maybe there's something gained from that. I don't know. Yeah, I had a, you know I had a theater history teacher when I first started out in college, and we sat down. I think first day, and she said, "I want you all to give yourselves a break." Reading plays is very difficult. Yeah. It's not linear. It's not just one voice. It's not a narrator. It's very difficult. If, it's very tricky to keep everybody, you know, straight, straight in your mind. Sure, yeah. Sure. Um, one of the one of the interesting things about Midsummer, just plot-wise, that helps it in performance and maybe um, more difficult just reading it off the page is we've got three worlds represented. Right. Mm-hmm. We've got the court. Um, which is a very formal, um, you know, sort of structured world. Then we've got the world of the lovers when they go into the forest, and them, the, oh, the four of them all trying to figure it out. And then we've got the world of the fairies, the fairy kingdom. And the interesting thing to me about the play is that all of these worlds collide mm-hmm. and what happens. So seeing that represented on stage mm-hmm. and seeing these three very disparate worlds collide with one another and how do the characters figure out how to interact with one another, mm-hmm. that to me is the, the interesting conundrum of the play, but also 
provides a lot of the fun of the play. Mm -hmm. If I ventured in the slipstream Between the viaducts of your dream it's time for a break. This is Doug Storm, and you've been listening to my conversation with David Kordemeyer, Amanda Catania, Grant Goodman, and Jenny McKnight, the four professional actors appearing courtesy of the Actors' Equity Association in the IU Summer Theater productions of A Midsummer Night's Dream and Sense and Sensibility. When we come back, we'll start off with Titania's so-called climate change speech from Act 2, Scene 1 of Midsummer Night's Dream. Stay with us for more Midsummer Sensibility on Interchange on WFHB. From the far side of the ocean, if I put the wheels in motion, and I stand with my arms behind me, and I'm pushing out the door, could you find? Would you kiss my eyes Lay me down In silence easy To be born again To be born again Let you go Standing with the look of Everest Talking to you to let better Showing pictures on the wall Whispering in the hall I'm pointing a finger at me And thorough this distemperature we see the seasons alter. Hoary-headed frosts fall in the fresh lap of the crimson rose. And on old Hyam's thin and icy crown, an odorous chaplet of sweet summer buds is as in mockery set. The spring, the summer, the childing autumn, angry winter, change their wonted liveries. And the mazed world, by their increase, now knows not which is which. And this same progeny of evils comes from our debate, from our dissension. We are their parents and original. Welcome back. This is Doug Storm on WFHB's Interchange. Our break music was Van Morrison's Astro Weeks off the 1968 album of the same name. And we just heard Hattie Morahan from the BBC's My Own Shakespeare do a few lines from Act 2, Scene 1, in which Titania is telling us how her fight with Oberon has caused the seasons to unbalance. 
Our show is Midsummer Sensibility, which is my pre-recorded conversation with David Kordemeyer, Amanda Catania, Grant Goodman, and Jenny McKnight, four professional actors appearing courtesy of the Actors' Equity Association in the IU Summer Theater productions of A Midsummer Night's Dream and Sense and Sensibility. We begin segment two with Grant discussing the discord returning to balance in Midsummer Night's Dream and the alchemical worldview of Elizabethan England. Titania has perhaps the greatest speech about global warming yeah. that's ever been written. Mm-hmm. Uh, in 1590 or whenever it was. Exactly so. Yeah, about how, how, they're, how, how everything affects everything else, I, I guess. Mm-hmm. And, and that is what Midsummer is about. The, the, the word um, discord Disco- yeah. is used several times. I love to do a word bubble of every play that I'm in and see, <laughs> see what those... Word, repetitive words, yeah. yeah. The moon, of course. Mm-hmm. But a lot of a lot of what Midsummer is about is about balance and returning to stasis. Mm-hmm. Mm, that's a really interesting point. And um, what fifteen ninety would be sort of an alchemical phase, right, where we're starting to to really see that things do affect each other more than we had imagined or more than just our superstitious thought was about it or they sort of combine and superstition and and science begin to to sort of think together and that's that's a great point because in elizabethan england they loved their idea of 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 god and its perfect crankshaft and all those spheres in perfect order and Maybe this is one of the reasons that Midsummer is such a great play, is because what is all over Shakespeare's writing is antithesis. Mm-hmm. And it's always, the language itself is always striving for balance and presenting one idea against another. And, and so maybe, that, maybe the stars literally align in this play because mm-hmm. that's what it's about. And we've also got another world represented, which is the world of the mechanicals, the, the sort of, you know, the working men of Athens who get together to present a play. Um, each of these worlds is, you know, is rife with sort of juicy language and intrigue and plot. But the, but the, then there's also just a real sense of fun and play and, you know, hilarity. Mm-hmm. What happens when things break down? Well, it just gets ridiculous and funny, you know, and so that's <laughs> delightful, too. I'm, like, restoring it and putting it back together. This is one of, I mean, the place starts off as a possible tragedy (laughs) with Hermia and her father and Theseus and Hippolyta in the court. And then they go into the forest and the fairies interact and intervene and Bottom and the mechanicals go in the forest and Bottom has this ass head put on and... um, Can you say that on the air? (laughs) (laughs) Donkey head. (laughs) Edit that out. Unless you're saying it too, David. No, David, you are a wonderful man. (laughs) On mic she says that. But, uh, But, you know, later when the play within a play is happening, I mean... Even though it's a silly version of this play, there's somebody playing moonshine in a wall and they're talking through someone's fingers (laughs) and whatnot. I mean, uh, you cannot help but be, as the audience, as playing Helena, and to receive it and see, like, oh, this could have happened to us. And how, and again, about like maturing love. And I think everybody in that room, including the mechanical, especially Bottom, because he's been on this journey, have been changed by what happened. Mm-hmm. And and that's the magic of theater. We're watching literally the magic of theater as theater yes. <laughs> on how we learn about ourselves and and grow and change, hopefully for the better. I think that's why I prefer those. Some of my favorite plays of Shakespeare's are plays that have a play within the play. Yeah, and Hamlet. Hamlet. The metatheatricality yeah. of that mm-hmm. is mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. priceless. 
Well, it's a good way to to sort of comment on what the art does. Yeah. Right. To be able to see the world uh, from a little bit of a distance in the audience. Uh, mm-hmm. To be able to see how we react against each other. Mm-hmm. Um, this is a you know a comment on what art is good for, right? Mm-hmm. Or bad for, I suppose. <laughs> if it if it influences you in some negative way, I suppose. Well, that's but. exactly it. You know, Theseus in the end of the play has the, the famous speech: "The lunatic, the lover, and the poet." And essentially, he is saying the exact opposite of what he thinks he's saying, which is he's knocking art, he's knocking imagination, and by doing so, he's sort of expounding on the necessity of it. Yeah, yeah it's one of the uh, one of the things I, I would um, ask about too, in terms of bottom in particular, being uh, perhaps you know having the most profound lines in Shakespeare without having any sense of the profundities, <laughs> or even maybe us in the audience being quite clear of what's going on or what it means um, within that goofy space. You know, um, it's an interesting. I mean, with a name like Bottom, yes. and, and wearing an ass head, <laughs> right. and, then, and then being able to say, you know, this this world, this play, these things have no bottom. Mm-hmm. You know, yes, um, quite <laughs> profound. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. It's hard. I mean, I know it's hard to think about. It's hard to act them. I suppose, mm-hmm. like you don't act profound, mm-hmm. right? The idea is not to act profound, mm-hmm. right? Right. Yeah, I think it's. I think it's more about discovery that Bottom mm-hmm. discovers that idea. As a result of all the things that have uh, that's happened to him, and uh, and it, and in life, it's the, it's those moments of when the light bulb comes on that are the, perhaps the most unforgettable and most uh, meaningful moments of our lives. And so, yes, for those moments in this play to happen to the lesser of those is perhaps the message becomes uh, is received more clearly mm. than if it came from a Theseus or an Oberon or you know. This is Doug Stone for Interchange on WFHB. The conversation today is with four professional actors performing in the IU Summer Theater's two productions, A Midsummer Night's Dream and Sense and Sensibility. Again, class distinctions abound. Mm-hmm. In, oh, no doubt. Yeah. yeah. And who, who's going to tell you how you're supposed to be or mm-hmm. think or in, and to understand the traumas in all these class struggles, you know, mm-hmm. and... and um, what we're supposed to take from I'm unfortunately I'm a, a didactic person right so I'm always saying well what what am I supposed to take from this you know mm-hmm. is there a right way to think about this Jane Austen it forces you really to think about the moral universe Shakespeare's as Grana said keeps you on different planes all the time mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. this way that way both ways neither way <laughs> either way yeah, yeah. I, I, my, my response to that would be would be a uh, from my experience, this is my sixth midsummer, third time playing bottom. And when I've experienced great writing like this, I take away something different every time. So I'm not sure that there's one thing to take away. That, mm. And uh, uh, I'm not a deeply religious man, but I, I, I think scripture is the same way. It, it's good writing, great stories, and, and, and um, when, I'm a, when I come face to face with some of these stories again, I take, depending on where my life is, it, it, it reveals something different to me. So I think that's what's great about these, these plays. And Sense is the same. It's a, it's a terrific script, a terrific adaptation. And uh, so I think the same results can happen from I th- that story. I think that's true in so many ways about any book, too. Mm-hmm. I, I've always been a big believer that like books come into your life at the right time when, you, when you're ready to, to really listen. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, I th- certainly I think 
plays are like that as well. Well, I think it's, too, going back to your question about how do these plays speak to each other. Mm -hmm. And if I might quote Harold Bloom again, (laughs) um, Harold Bloom puts Jane Austen right up there with Shakespeare. Mm -hmm. And I think that sort of to answer your question is that both Shakespeare and Jane Austen don't make judgments about their characters. And if, you know, Chekhov said, all our job as artists is to do is to is not to answer the questions but to raise the right questions and mm-hmm. to ask the questions correctly mm-hmm. to pose the questions correctly so good productions of either one of these plays won't make judgments won't tell an audience what to think because the complexities of both writers don't don't judge those and they're so well drawn characters they are fully inhabited characters and i think that's why we are still reading jane austen's why we are still doing Shakespeare. Yeah, certainly. You know, when we were talking about Midsummer, I mean, excuse me, as Sense and Sensibility earlier, you mentioned that there are some kind of terrible people, but it's all perceived terrible people. I mean, look, look at Fanny in the we had this discussion. Fanny is just looking out for her family. I mean, her son. She certainly doesn't think she's evil. Absolutely or not. Or I mean, I think I think she truly believes in everything she's saying. It's just that we, the audience, see it from. The Dashwoods perspective. Well, one of the things that happens there too is that you act it, right? Yeah. So if uh, and I'll just you know from the uh, the, the Ang Lee version, uh, you mm-hmm. know you see Fanny's face. She's <laughs> diabolical. When she does things. She makes a little smirk, mm-hmm. and so you know right. the the director slash actor is mm-hmm. you know editorializing or putting mm-hmm. an interpretation on it when the page will not. Mm-hmm. Uh, and again, it's why I would you know I don't question the the veracity of or the 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 medium of theater, but it does force an interpretation on you frequently. Absolutely, right. you can do that in Shakespeare too. I mean, you right. c- you can play Iago and Richard the Third twisting your mustache, but I mean, to me, it's much more interesting if when you're watching the scene between Richard and Lady Anne, if you, the audience, are like, "Wow, he's sincere. He means this." And then that moment when he turns to you and is like, "I didn't mean that," <laughs> is way more powerful and interesting and complex and. That's theater to me. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. And the, the, you know, and not to judge your character. Absolutely, you know? because if you're judging it, then the audience will judge it. You know, we are, as humans, we're complex. We want selfishly sometimes. We want for other people other times, and um, we put judgments on ourselves one minute and then don't the next. And I think, of course, theater has to reflect that somehow. Well, and, you you mentioned too the. Um, you know, I think the the fair. I think Grant, it was you that talked about the the sort of catalyst that the um, Jennings plays uh, in terms of you know getting the the characters to become uh, to move in a certain direction through the through the story through sense and sensibility. But it just struck me that you know this is the the alchemical idea you talked about earlier. So when we talked about the idea of uh, the fairies inhabiting a land that affects and influences all the other characters and the actions also. Uh, Again, judging or not judging, you know, stops you from letting the world happen the way it does, Mm -hmm. I suppose. Um, I like, uh, I always want to say this, like what I think is best in art is that it stops you from doing anything. Mm -hmm. Like I, I want to be not told how to do things but to be stopped from doing things mm. frequently you know that's how i would li- i would like our leaders to just be watching <laughs> good art or uh-huh. you know uh, yeah but you know we've trained 
our audiences incorrectly. We buy, you know, cliched Hollywood films that have pat endings, mm -hmm. that everything is tied up in a bow. And the implication that you should react to this in a certain way. If you are, you know, a discerning audience member, then by the end of the play, you will have received the message <laughs> that we are trying to communicate. And that's not how... That's not how good art. It's certainly not how theater works. You know, theater, one of the beautiful things about theater is it's a shared experience in real time, and you know, if the story is well told, then you leave the audience with their part of the bargain, their responsibility, which is receiving it, figuring it out, interpreting it, and and you know, making sense of it very in a very personal way. So trying to sort of hammer a theme or, you know, this is the meaning of the play um, into, in, as a part of the performance, I think is a mistake. And you're, you're taking away the audience's participation. And neglecting the complexities of, of both pieces. I mean, you know, that Shakespeare is a complex writer, Jane Austen is a complex writer. So to dumb it down, you know, and... Or to simplify it or, yeah, or to, or to make it mean one thing. Mm -hmm. It's doing it an injustice. Absolutely, mm -hmm. it does it. But I do think that and humanity. <laughs> you know, uh, you know, I, a lot of people say, "Well, I don't. All I want to do is go to the theater and be entertained. You know, I just want to go see a movie and forget about life for a while." And you know, there's a time and place for that, I mm -hmm. think. But when done well, it should make you think. Yeah. <laughs> One of the things I love about both of these plays, in particular sense, but both of them, is you know, watching these people go through multiple difficulties, obstacles, roadblocks, and they still keep going. Mm -hmm. uh, that's one of the things that for me is so, even though the play within the play, when the mechanicals do the play for the Duke and Duchess, even though it's very, very funny, it's also incredibly sweet and you root <laughs> for them. They, they, I mean, everything goes wrong. <laughs> and watching them sort of try to keep going and try to keep the story moving and uh, is just, I think it's lovely and sweet. That's one of the things that I take away from it. But another person might just be like, oh, that was raucous. It was hilarious and fun. And, you know, both of those interpretations are right. Absolutely. I like the sweet idea. Um, that's interesting. Because, you know, it plays against a conception of, again, against the conception of class. Mm -hmm. Vulgar is not usually thought of as sweet, <laughs> right? So, yeah. But at the same time, I, I hear that in, in how they talk. You know, I hear that how they talk to each other, mm -hmm. right? They're in it together. Absolutely. Yeah, and that's, again, something we tend to easily too easily consign the abilities and thoughts of other classes mm. in a certain way. Mm. And that, that nice, nicely confounds Absolutely. that. Absolutely. There's know. a nice exchange between Theseus and Hippolyta. Philostrate has said, these rustic men want to come and perform this play for you. Theseus says, great, let's see it. And Hippolyta says, I don't know. I, I, it makes me uncomfortable to see people you know, stepping outside of what they're what they're comfortable doing and making fools of themselves. And Theseus reassures her and says, you know, this beautiful speech about, um, well, essentially tongue-tied simplicity. He says, uh, um, tongue-tied simplicity, therefore, in least speak most to my capacity. Right. And the last little bit about love. Mm -hmm. Love, therefore. And tongue-tied simplicity, and least mm -hmm. speak most to my capacity. Right. So it's the intention. It's not necessarily the performance itself, or you know, the the sort of glorious, beautiful profundity of a thing that makes it valuable. It's the spirit with which it's 
given, that, and, gen- that idea of generosity. And again. indeed, Puck, Puck says that at the end of the play, if mm-hmm. we have offended, is with our goodwill, yeah, right? right. We, just, we didn't mean to. We, mean yeah, to. Yeah, we right. wanted right. you to enjoy yeah. this experience. Right. You can't trust that guy, though. No, you can't. <laughs> no, that, that Puckster, he's a, she, he, she is a... Yeah, yeah. whatever. Right. <laughs> you can't trust it. Fair play to you. It's time for a break. This is Doug Storm, and you've been listening to my conversation with David Kortemeyer, Amanda Catania, Grant Goodman, and Jenny McKnight, the four professional actors appearing courtesy of the Actors' Equity Association in the IU Summer Theater productions of A Midsummer Night's Dream and Sense and Sensibility. When we come back, we'll discover that being an actor is the template employment for the gig economy that we all now seem to be facing in this country's jobless recovery. Stay with us for more Midsummer Sensibility on Interchange on WFHB. Welcome back. This is Doug Storm on WFHB's Interchange. Our break music was Van Morrison's Fair Play off of 1974's Veden Fleece. Our show is Midsummer Sensibility. For our final segment, we'll hear that the profession of actor is the template employment for the gig economy that we all now seem to be facing in the country's jobless recovery. And while that sounds scary, we'll also find out ways trooping actors create communities of trust within that economic scarcity. Well, as uh, as actors, uh, as uh, you know, traveling troupe in a sense, right? So this is nice in terms of Shakespeare. You are you are a troupe of your. Uh, you're not a troupe, I suppose, but you you guys work, you travel, you're you're working actors who try to get jobs and and as you say, I assume that, that it's not the best market. I have no idea. Mm-hmm. Um, I personally don't see that many plays, but mm-hmm. since I live in a college town, I I have the opportunity, and mm-hmm. when I can, I take them. Um, is it a hard world? Is it? I mean, is it a, a rare thing to be successful in this profession? <laughs> <laughs> well, it depends too on on what you define as success. Mm-hmm. I think um, most actors want to work, mm-hmm. and it's during those times when there's not a project to work on that actors tend to get, you know, uh, tend to worry or tend to feel, you know uninspired or that kind of thing. Or, you know, I think any time that you're putting your own self-worth based on what you do. And I'm, I mean, for example, my, I have a cousin who's a nurse and after doing all of her training and everything, she was, you know, I'm not auditioning, but interviewing. (laughs) And I remember having this conversation with her where she was like, I don't know how you do this, Amanda, because I'm essentially unemployed all the time, even when I'm working. 
You're I don't, still looking I'm for still the next looking job. for the next job or the job after the next job or you know, et cetera. She's like, I don't know how you do this. It's so stressful. I feel like all this anxiety all the time. And I was like, Yep. <laughs> <laughs> you, you guys are the sort of template of our current gig economy, right? Yeah. Yeah. The Very gig is the next, so. the next yeah. gig. You're yeah. already doing it. Absolutely. Which is sort of why when you know the bottom fell out in 2008 and everybody was screaming <laughs> with the running around with their heads cut yeah, off. I was like, like yeah, Welcome well, to welcome our world. Yeah. 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 That's how it works. Yeah. 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 You look for a new job now. So David and I. I both have um, experience as teachers as well, and right currently I'm teaching. And one of the things that I like to impart to my students who are interested in pursuing a career in acting is not to think of your career as um, as being an actor, but to think of your career as being an auditioner, mm. because that is what you're going to be doing most of the time, <laughs> honestly. And so if you can leave an audition feeling that you've done your best and that you know, you're satisfied with what you left in the room, then you did a good job that day. Now, if it manifests into a job, then that's gravy. You know, that's like the icing on top of the cake. But, but it is, I mean, the, the, the thing that is, for me, most challenging is just the constant um, looking for, for work. But I will say this, too, when you, when you called us a traveling troupe. <laughs> It's strange. I I often say that there are only 86 people in this business. I always make that joke. And it's somewhat true. I mean, the four of us, luckily, have been lucky enough to work quite regularly. Um, in fact, David and Amanda and I worked uh, earlier, well, no, last year, mm-hmm. on a production of Midsummer Night's Dream in Tennessee. Mm-hmm. Um, and we've all worked together before. Um, and working actors tend to continue working and so it the, the world of regional theater world of theater in general sort of becomes a small little community a small mm-hmm. little Indeed. family where i mean we you know we play the 6 degrees of kevin bacon right. all the time with right. each other oh well you know so and so and you know so like we were before we sat down to this interview yeah mm-hmm. what's uh, a narrow world then i mean i i'm it's one of those things, too, where you think, well, as you say, as you get work, you continue to get work. Obviously, as long as you do well. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, it's uh, similar to my, uh, uh, maybe I sh- I'm not annoyed with you as, as people continuing to do work, but rather um, <laughs> the idea that other people uh, may not have the same opportunity mm-hmm. because you are known, um, you are st- stable, um, I, so you know when you know when you see uh, football, baseball coaches who constantly have jobs, and you wonder why yeah. in the world do we need the same baseball coaches yeah. all the time? I'm not saying we don't well, need the same I'm, actors, but it's got to be a hard world to break into. Also, well, no doubt. I no mean, look, familiar familiarity is always appealing. Whether we're talking about politics, we're going to vote for the person that whose name we've heard for the last 10 years versus this new person, or, or whether or not we're talking about, I want to hire this person because I know that they know someone that I know. Right. Or um, that I, they've, worked a co- they've worked at a big theater a couple times that we respect. Um, I think allowing to be, allowing to trust your gut and cast the person that you feel that has nothing to do with their resume, that who comes in a room and is just the best fit for that part, is very brave. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of people don't do that all the time. You have to, and unfortunately, I think especially initially, you have to have someone take a chance on you, and, and in order to start that ball rolling. Um, and I, I mean, that's that's the way. That's it's the complication of 
art mm-hmm. and any art mean, and I, commerce. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I think one of the things too that, um, in terms of success, which was sort of your initial question, um, I think that one of the things that makes an actor eventually reach a level of success is that they stay in it. Mm-hmm. You know, because a lot of people aren't just sort of, you know, structurally um, equipped to deal with the constant auditioning and, you know, the rejection and this and that. So those people who who do build up um, a sense of Mm self-worth, as Amanda was saying, that doesn't really have everything to do with whether or not I get the job, those are the people who tend to stay in it. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, people who aren't constitutionally set up for that kind of thing, they, they fall away. And so the pool gets smaller and smaller. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and the people who do stay in it tend to work um, more often. I think another interesting thing I found, um, just with certain friends in Chicago, I, there's like, for example, there are some older men who I know who are working all the time at like big theaters, but they're not getting to play the juicy roles. They're playing like this lord here. And, you know, I think after a while that takes a toll on your heart too because, frankly, financially, there is a plateau. I mean, there is there, it, the, the ceiling stops of what you're going to make at a certain point. So you're not going to be making more and more money. Um, and if you're not getting that other additional artistic gratification, I think you inevitably start questioning why you're doing it to begin with. Um, and I think that... I think those questions of why am I doing this, do I still want to be doing this, um, are always a part, at least I can speak for myself, I don't know about you guys, but it's something I'm constantly negotiating and I think it doesn't matter what race you are, how old you are, what gender you are, I think those questions are gonna continue to come up. This is Doug Stone for Interchange on WFHB. The conversation today is with four professional actors performing in the IU Summer Theater's two productions, A Midsummer Night's Dream and Sense and Sensibility. So when I was in my 20s long ago, uh, the, many, acting, many moons. <laughs> yeah, the acting job was very different in terms of what we're talking about with other jobs. That's not the case anymore. The, the issue of competition, of, of jobs going away, uh, of, of cobbling together work, that's a part of every, of many people's reality. It's also a lot more theater programs throughout the universities, which are indeed making a lot more actors going yeah. into the business. And so it is very important to, I think, in my experience, to to continually ask the question, to uh, assess, you know, what what am I doing, you know, as an actor? What, what kinds of work am I getting? What kinds of work do I want? Because uh, that that will change and evolve. Mm-hmm. Um, do I want to do I want to do the auditions as much as I did before, or you know let that go and, and things like that? So I, but that's that's a healthy good thing. I, I, and I think that's good in any career that we must always kind of check in right. with where we are and who we are and right. does what the job want. fit that? You mm-hmm. know. Yeah, and yeah. I think the idea. I think um, particularly with with the um, the students that we're seeing now at work and working with at Indian University, um, they have a different idea of success mm-hmm. than the idea that, you know, when I graduated college, it mm-hmm. was, well, how much money can I make and what kind of house can I live in? And now the ideas of success are a little more flexible and it's more about sort of personal fulfillment mm-hmm. and am I reaching my own personal goals as opposed to am I making a, you know, six-figure salary? Mm-hmm. And yeah, That's certainly. healthy in my opinion. Yeah. Certainly as an artist, you have to be willing to sacrifice a lot. You have to be willing to sacrifice being away from friends and family and on the road a lot. Missing weddings and funerals. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Yeah, I was going to say how much travel you guys do. All the time. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. 
Um, Jenny and I were homeless for four years of our life. We put everything in storage and because we had gigs lined up and we, we lived the life of the vagabond actor. We really did. But, you know, the, I'll go back to say something that, that you brought up about being on the outside looking in. When you're a young actor and you can't crack, you know, get a, get a break and, and, and crack the code and, and turn equity, get your equity card, um, and you're like, oh, I, why won't they hire me? Why won't they give me a mm-hmm. chance? And then mm-hmm. you get on the other side of it and you start working for a while and you start forming relationships then you start to understand why, and that is because, like you were saying, there's a certain trust developed. And that's why I'll say, I'll bring it back to repertory theater and ensemble and how important company is. And they, theater companies, true theater companies in this country don't exist very much anymore. And I think that the best work comes from that. Comes from company, from I the totally sense of agree. ensemble. Yep. And, you know, that's why I like being in Bloomington and doing repertory and, and being a part of a company is because the original idea behind regional yeah. theater, the reason that the Guthrie in Minneapolis was created, the whole idea was to get world-class artists mm-hmm. to come to a community so that the people in that community could see the same type of work, same caliber of work that was being done on Broadway. Mm-hmm. I still wholeheartedly believe in that. Mm-hmm. Yes. Mm-hmm. And I think it is the reason because we're the four equity um, actors in this, this company this summer and, and hopefully the interchange between us and, and the student actors and the local actors um, hopefully breeds uh, a level of expertise mm-hmm. yeah. in, in, throughout the company. And not just in terms of talent, but also in terms of work ethic. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, I think one of the other reasons that you know, actors who work, work, tend to work continually is that they develop a reputation for being prepared, mm-hmm. for being smart, for being reliable, mm-hmm. for being, you know, really good at their jobs, not just as an actor, but also, you know, a reliable company member. Mm-hmm. And that, I think, is something that we can also help to impart to the Absolutely. next generation of actors is it's not just about how talented you are, it's also about how hard you work and how much we can trust you to be a a really integral part of this company. I think that's one of the, yeah, yeah, I was going to say that um, that's one of the reasons I think, if I might speak for all four of us, we like being here. Uh, David and Amanda and I worked, as I said earlier this year, down at Clarence Brown Theater in Knoxville, Tennessee, which is on the campus of the University of Tennessee. And Clarence Brown, who is a famous Hollywood director, started that company because his idea was that the best way for young artists to learn is from working with professional artists. Mm -hmm. And that's what the model of IU Summer Theater is this summer. Mm -hmm. Um, It combines equity professional actors with students from the grad program and the undergrad program so that they will hopefully, hopefully learn something from us, (laughs) learn (laughs) what not to do. Well, this is the idea behind what uh, you know Orson Welles uh, Mercury Theater. Um, mm-hmm. you know, so it's it certainly uh, makes sense, and, and to take it into other um, media as well as well. You know, mm-hmm. Welles tried to do that. That's how that's how I learned everything. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, I, at first, I learned everything by emulating actors in Washington D.C., which is where I got my break. And that and that's and that is exactly what you do yeah. before you even realize before you really know what you're doing. Mm-hmm. And indeed, uh, I've done this is my fourth season here, and and so to come back and and to work with some students that that have been here before, the trust issues that we're talking about happens in in that case too. That that, that form of company happens immediately, and and it it becomes um, very positive and very um, uh, 
rewarding in the rehearsal process. To I have think that it's trust. actually nice as an audience member too. I mean, I for me, I grew up going to Providence, Rhode Island and seeing the shows at Trinity Rep. And I'm like, I knew all the actors. And mm-hmm. I mean, I didn't know them personally, but I felt like I knew them. I had seen them in this show and this show. And that element was really fun for me to see how, wow, that person, that's that actor? Mm-hmm. They look so different in this in this role. Mm-hmm. And wow, they're really great in this. Or, you know. And sometimes you feel like you've discovered them. Exactly. And then, you know, if they hit it bigger, yeah. oh, I knew them I knew years them. ago. Yeah. <laughs> but again, you know, I think they, they had... Uh, clearly had built a relationship some of them have been working together for like 10 15 years or something like that which you do develop that shorthand and there's something that you bring in to a process that you couldn't build on just meeting someone for the first time and that's why honestly that's why i'm an actor i went yeah. you know as i said i'm from southern indiana I went on a field trip one day to watch uh, macbeth at the actors theater of louisville and, you know, uh, the actor playing Macbeth turned around and said tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow. And I said to myself, that's what I want to do with my yeah. life right there, you know. And so, you yeah. know, it, it's important. It, it doesn't have to be on Broadway. Mm-hmm. I mean, it can be in your own backyard mm-hmm. and be fantastic art. Yeah. I think, too, just to bring it full circle to the to the Jane Austen question and um for me, and I think pro- probably for all of us, the joy of what we do is in telling the story. Yeah. So when you when you get a good, solid, juicy story like we have this summer with Sense and Sensibility and with Midsummer Night's and Dream writing. and great writing, <laughs> um, the joy is in telling that story and having an audience share that with you. I, for me, you know, it's always about the story. Absolutely. And, how, and how storytelling. Hard the, uh, how hard is the alternating night? I mean, how is it? I love it. Like I love it. it. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I've always found uh, rehearsing rep is is tedious, uh, not tedious, strenuous, challenging. <laughs> yes, but performing rep is heaven. That's all the time we have for Midsummer Sensibility, my oh-so-clever mashup of A Midsummer Night's Dream and Sense and Sensibility. Those are the two plays being performed at the IU Summer Theater, running July 8th through the 23rd in the Wells Metz Theater on the campus of Indiana University. Next time on Interchange, Colin Dan joins us to talk about ghosts, dogs, and the law. Dan has just published a weird little book called With Dogs at the Edge of Life, which is poetic, journalistic, and personal, and centers upon our social use and misuse of dogs, and the ways in which dogs carry the representative burden of human civil death. The pit bull, once beloved and now reviled, comes in for special consideration. Ghosts, dogs, and the law. Next time on Interchange, Tuesdays at 6 p.m. on WFHB. Thanks for listening. I'm Doug Storm, and I produce Interchange. Editing assistance by Rob Schoon. Our board engineer is Jonathan Richardson, and Joe Crawford is executive producer. We'll close the show with another from Van Morrison off of Veden Fleece. This is Cul-de-Sac, where Van reminds us it's not who you know that matters, it's who you really are. The Jazz Menagerie is coming up next on your community radio station, WFHB.
the cobblestones 